Well, good morning, everybody. It is a joy to get to be with you all, and I am excited to get to dig into a new book. We, uh, we began a new series this last weekend on Easter on the book of First Peter, and it's our hope that for the next several weeks we're going to get to walk, cover every verse in the book of First Peter together. So uh, we're, we're jumping headlong into that together today. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we will We'll do that jump I was just talking about. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the privilege that you have given us over and over again uh, to come before you. Uh, for Lord, we pray that our familiarity with this practice uh, wouldn't cause it to lose its power in our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, awaken us Help us to hear from your word. Help us to help us be open uh, to receiving it. God, point out sin, point out areas that need to change. Uh, but most importantly, God, point us to Jesus. That's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, at the, uh, at the end of last year, our family took a trip up to Sequoia National Forest, um, it was our family was going to meet my brother and his family there, and we were really, really looking forward uh, to having that time as a family, but also to get to do vacation with my brother and his family. We'd never done that before, so we are kind of like, what, what's this going to look like? Um, it ended up being really good. Uh, we took the, the six-hour drive up to the park. Uh, we did it with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so it felt like a 36-hour drive, but it was in reality only six hours. Um, so I was excited for, for the time as a family, like I said, time with my brother and, and his family. Um, but I was also really excited to see giant trees. Uh, I, I hadn't been there since I was a kid, and so I, I still have these images of sequoia trees in my head, and I was really, really excited uh, for that opportunity to, to be in the forest again. I didn't see a single sequoia tree the entire time that we were there. And it's because there was a fire in the park. And you might be thinking, well, you, you could have known that going into it because there's this thing called the internet. <laughs> there is that thing, but I didn't think to check it. I kind of have this mindset, like, I will experience things when I'm there. And up to that point, no thank you. Um, so I was totally caught off guard by the fire, um, but again, as I mentioned, it, it was still a good time. Um, our kids love their cousins, so it all, it all worked out. Uh, but I was reminded, uh, I, I think I was par- perhaps consoling myself, um, it, I think it was the, the summer prior, a family from our church had gone up to um, Sequoia, and they were telling me about how fire actually plays a pivotal role for the development of the sequoia trees and, and sequoia forests. See, it's fire that actually enables, or it's, it's what causes uh, sequoia seed pods to open up and scatter seed. And it also clears away the brush at the bottom of the forest floor, which enables sequoia seedlings to, to take root and to sprout up. See, without fire, there are no sequoia trees. In fact, in the, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was massive fire suppression. That was kind of the order of the day. And as a result, there was massive failure of sequoia reproduction. So these trees that can live to be up to 3,000 years old and can reach heights exceeding 300 feet, they're actually born of fire. 
And some of the biggest, most beautiful trees have intense scars from the fires that they faced. But they still stand. And it's from those fires that new life comes. So I was thinking about that reality when I read this passage. After describing the living hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that is rooted in His resurrection and the imperishable inheritance that awaits us, right? all cause for rejoicing, Peter in these next verses takes a massive left turn. He shifts from the imperishable inheritance that awaits us to the reality of the present trials that we face. And he compares those trials to a fire. My friends, fire is intimidating. It can be outright terrifying. Why? Because it can hurt us. It can burn us. But this passage assures us that like sequoias in Christ, even though we face trials, even though we may end up scarred, He can use those things to make us better. We live in a fallen world and God allows us to go through fiery trials but not with the intention of destroying us. No, it's quite the opposite. He allows us to face trials here and now so that we can be refined, so that new life can be formed. So this morning, we're going to focus on the topic of trials, and we're going to look at three things. We'll look at what trials are, what trials point to, and what trials accomplish in us. So first, we're going to look at what trials are. So what exactly is Peter referring to when he writes about trials in verse 6? Let's read that verse together. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now the word translated trials here is the Greek word pyrasmos, and it appears throughout, uh, it appears throughout the New Testament. There you, that's, that's what it looks like. Uh, So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, we read this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing, that's that word pyrasmos, in the wilderness. This refers to the time of Israel's testing in the wilderness where they were wandering as strangers, people without power or position, people without protection or permanence. We see this word appear again in Luke 8.13, and this is in the context of the parable of the sower. There Jesus says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and and in time of testing, again, that same word, they fall away. So here we see Jesus using the word trial in close proximity to joy, like we see in our passage in 1 Peter. But in this context, it refers to a temporary joy, those of, the temporary joy of those who initially receive the word with excitement, but end up falling away because of trials. Trials here likely referring to verbal and physical persecutions on account of the word. We see this word again in Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, where the apostle Paul writes, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, that same word, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Paul came to Galatia during his first missionary journey, and while God 
did a work in and through him there, it came at a tremendous cost to Paul. Paul encountered strong opposition in Galatia to the point where he was eventually dragged out of the city, stoned, and left for dead. Paul survived, but barely. And this proved to be a trial not only for him, but according to these verses, for the Galatian Christians as well who loved and cared for Paul. And that's the use of this word trial in this context, right? The angst suffered by Christians who see their loved ones enduring physical suffering and pain. All right, just one more example. Uh, we also see this word trial in Mark, uh, Mark 14, verses 37 and 38, which we looked at just a few weeks ago. There we read, eventually, and he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, that same word. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here, the word translated temptation, again, it's the same word, pyrasmos. The context of this passage is Jesus in the garden. And the author of our letter, Peter, was there with him. And Jesus instructs the disciples, he admonishes Peter and and the others there to pray, to depend on God so that they might not enter into temptation. So there you have it, right? Several instances and nuances to this word trials. So in summary, it can refer to seasons in life where you lack provision, power, position, permanence. It can refer to seasons in which you suffer verbal or physical persecutions on account of the word. It can refer to pain experienced by those who have loved ones whose bodies seem to be wasting away before your very eyes. It could also refer to dark moments in life when we're asked to fend off, fend, uh, fend off the prowling attacks of Satan. Fun stuff, right? So these are, are realities that Christians inevitably face in a fallen world. And there is much more that we could add to this list. There is nothing neat or tidy or succinct about the scope of human suffering. Trials are unavoidable. But what, according to Peter, should mark the Christian attitude even in the midst of trials? Well, again, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The Christian attitude, despite the trials that we face, should be marked by rejoicing. We don't rejoice in trials, but we have reason to rejoice in Christ regardless of what we're facing. Why? Well, first, because of what trials point us to. Now, if you have your Bibles with you and you open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 will look something like this. Now, I don't expect you to be able to read that. You probably didn't bring binoculars with you. But I just have this up on the screen to show that what we have here, it's, it's a nice layout You notice there are verse numbers, there are sentences, there's even a paragraph break in between verses 9 and 10. Looks nice, right? If you have your Bibles in a place where you could actually read it, you would agree. It looks nice. Well, in the original language, which is Greek, the text actually looks like this. Now, it's still clean, um, and I don't expect you to to be able to see or read that. You might be thinking, it's Greek to me. Um, 
I'm a dad, I can make jokes like that. Um, but the thing that you probably can recognize is a period. And if you look closely, you will see that in this entire section, this is verses 3 through 12, there is one period. And it occurs at the very end of verse 12. And what does that tell you? It tells you that verses 3 through 12 are one sentence, which means that this is one continuous thought. Uh, grammar instructors may be disgusted with the Bible at times, but it's okay. It's still God's Word and it is very helpful. Okay, so what does that mean that verses 3 through 12 are, are one sentence? It means, again, that it, this is one continuous thought. So why is it that we can rejoice in trials according to verse 6? Well, because of the realities that precede it in verses 3 through 5. That according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You can rejoice though you are facing trials because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. It is in Him that you have been born again. It is because of Him that you have hope. He took on the penalty of our sins, which means that we don't have to. God punished Him so that you could go free. And so 1 John 1.9 declares, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, something worth pointing out about this text Notice that John says that when we confess that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We don't often equate forgiveness and justice. In fact, we tend to hold those two things at odds. But those two things come together at the cross. Because Jesus absorbed the justice of God, we can be forgiven. We can be pardoned. A crime was committed. We committed it. We have sinned. We continue to sin. But the sentence has been executed on Jesus. So it would actually be unjust for God to hold us accountable for our sins. It would be unjust for God to punish us for our sins because he has already leveled that punishment against Jesus. Right? That would nullify Jesus' work for us. Because of Jesus's sacrificial death on our behalf, we can go free. That is good news in and of itself, is it not? But friends, it gets better. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have the assurance that God is going to renew all things. He is going to make all of the sad things in life come untrue. He began that work in Jesus and we eagerly anticipate its completion upon His return. And in the meantime, as we suffer sad things, as we experience trials, our task is to allow them to point us to the cross. Peter, later in this letter, admonishes us to do just that. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Right? Our suffering now points us to, reminds us of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. 
It reminds us of his hurt, of his pain, of his hardship. But it also reminds us that the story doesn't end there. In Christ, we have not just hope of, of, not simply of pardon, we have a living hope that we too will get to share in his resurrection. But we're given further reason to rejoice in the midst of trials. And that's this, what trials accomplish in us. Let's look together at verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, these verses assure us that God is at work in the midst of our trials. He is forming us in and through hardship. Trials in this life refine us, and they have the capacity to produce in us a faith that is of more value than gold, though it too is tested by fire. In studying for for this sermon, I came across a picture as an ancient Roman picture that shows how grain used to be threshed. Uh, it shows a man using this, this type of, of crude cart with these rolling cylinders, and on those rolling cylinders there was these uh, sharp bits of iron. And the cart would go over these sheaves of grain, and it would pick them up and run them through these sharp cylinder, cylinders, separating the wheat from the chaff, the things that can be eaten from that which was just perishable. This cart was called a tribulum, and it's from this process and from this contraption that we get our English word, tribulation. Now think, would the farmer go over the grain with the tribulum just for the heck of it? No. No, He was extracting the best, purest stuff so that the grain could be usable, so that it could be edible. And this is how God uses trials. He uses them to test, to purify us, to make us into the people that he calls us to be. Another way that you can think about this, if you were to take or extract a bar of iron ore from the earth, assuming that it's a small bar, it could be worth as little as $5. Not very valuable in itself. But if you take that same bar and you, you add heat to it and you refine it, You could turn it into horseshoes, and then it'd be worth all of $10, doubling our profits here. If, on the other hand, you were to take that bar and you were to add more heat and you were to hone it more, refine it more, and turn it into something like sewing needles, it could be worth up to $3,500. If, on the other hand, you, you took that same piece of iron and you added more heat and more refining, and you turned it into springs for watches, it could be worth up to a quarter of a million dollars. What makes the difference? The heat by which the iron bar was tempered and honed. I want you to think for just a minute about the processes that have made you better, that have made you stronger, that have made you kinder, that have made you more empathetic. I'd venture to guess that they weren't easy processes. We tend to not learn from the good things in life. No, we we tend to learn the most through pain. 
We tend to learn the most through suffering. It's that that often makes us better. Now, I don't know exactly what you're facing, but I think likely most of us in this room, in one way or another, are facing some sort of hardship, some sort of trial. And I have no idea why you are facing the particular trial that you are facing. And if somebody comes to you in the midst of a trial and says, I know why, you should run away from that person as quickly as you possibly can. Because that's a person that is claiming to be able to see into the mind of God. And we just can't do that. Now, we don't know why we face various trials, especially in the moment. We typically can't understand why specific things come our way. But we can know two things in the midst of trials with utter certainty. One that God is doing something in the midst of them. He is at work. And two, he is with us in those trials. That's funny, at one point this week when I was working on my sermon, I had inserted in this section of my sermon this uh, uh, kind of a philosophical primer on the problem of evil and you know, the ethics of suffering. And, and can God be a good God even though he sends these things our way? And you know, we, we could have that conversation and I, I would actually enjoy it because I'm a nerd. Um, and, and too, as someone with a, somewhat of a philosophical bent, I appreciate the fact that the Bible has good answers to those things. You, you read through the book of Job, you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and there is intellectually stimulating material that's helpful and good. But what's interesting is that for the most part, when the Bible talks about suffering, it doesn't, it doesn't talk about the problem of evil as we, as we tend to phrase it. It doesn't pose it as a philosophical issue. No, when the Bible talks about suffering, again, we, we keep coming back to those two realities, those two truths, that God is at work and that he's there with you in the midst of it. I listened to a story recently. There's a, an author named John Green who appeared on a, a podcast called Heavyweight. Uh, Green is a New York Times bestselling author. He writes primarily like young adult fiction novels. Um, he's been critically acclaimed. But before becoming a writer, he had a very different ambition. Uh, Green wanted to be a minister. He wanted to get ordained and, and serve a church. Um, so after college, he, he applied to divinity school. He said he was accepted. He was all set to go. And the summer before he got there, he decided to take, um, take a job as a, a chaplain at a, a hospital in the, the town he grew up in. And I think, it was the, I think he said it was the third night that he was on call. Uh, the hospital got a call that a trauma patient was, was on his way um, and that it was a burn victim. And what made, the, what made it that much more traumatic, right? it's already a, a trauma, it's already a burn victim, is that it was a three-year-old boy. So when they got that news, he said that his heart, as well as the heart of everyone in that hospital, just sank. And when the, when the kids showed up, uh, it, it was just awful. It was just terrible. And, and John was there with the family, and it was, it was trying to do his job to the best of his ability. Uh, but he was convinced that, that the kid wasn't going to make it. 
And so he left that night after, after his shift was over, and he didn't go back. He was done as a chaplain. Uh, he was done with his ambition of being a minister. He, he more or less lost his faith that night. But despite that, every single night, for 20 years, he prayed for that little boy. He knew his name. Uh, his name was Nick. He knew his last name. It's not me. Um, <laughs> he, he, he remembered the kid's name. He remembered the kid's surname. And um, he decided, like, I don't know what I believe at this point, but I, I, I need to pray for this kid. Again, not, not even knowing uh, if he was alive. And he would think every so often, yeah, I, I, sh- I should look this kid up. Like, it'd be easy for me to determine whether or not he, he made it, uh, but he couldn't bring himself to. Uh, he didn't, I think he was afraid of, of learning that the kid didn't, in fact, make it. But after 20 years, finally, 20 years of praying for this kid, he finally worked up the courage. So he Googled, um, Googled the, the young man's name and found him and found his Facebook page, and the kid made it. He was alive. He was in college, and um, by his Facebook page, appeared to be doing well, but, you know, that's what Facebook pages presents. Um, and so he, he was relieved. He said that he looked at the kid's Facebook page and, and comments and all these different things and just started, like, sobbing with joy, um, and he was also laughing because he re- recognized that he and this kid had absolutely nothing in common, but was just so happy that he was alive. And uh, in participating in this podcast, the, part of the, the whole deal with this particular show is they tend to bring people like that together. And so the host of this podcast reached out to Nick, and they had a recorded conversation. And John just really wanted to know, like, how are you doing? What has your life been like? And Nick was really happy to share everything that he went through. Um, The conversation was was really touching, but I think one of the most striking things about the conversation was Nick's view of that night, the night that caused John to walk away from his faith. Uh, Nick's injuries were incredibly severe. He did almost die, and for years... It was uncertain whether or not he would actually make it. He was constantly dealing with various infections. It was a rough childhood. But according to Nick, he said, I would definitely like to have not been burned and not deal with the daily things that come with that. But it brought my family to Christ in a way that it would not have otherwise. So it was only after the accident that uh, another family invited his family to a local church where they were able to get connected and where they found community and they encountered the love of Jesus in a very powerful way. So to Nick, the fire brought him the most important thing in his life. It brought him to God. And in the interview, he went on to quote Romans 8.28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Despite his chronic pain, despite the many hardships he faced, 
Nick looks at his life, he looks at that event with gratitude because he knows that God was doing something in the fire. And just as importantly, God was with him in the fire. You know, when I read about, um, when, when I, whenever I see a passage that references fire in the Bible, one of the, one of the things that, that comes to my mind is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't know the story, they were cast into a fiery furnace by King Nebuchadnezzar because of their faith. But in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 24 and 25 of Daniel, we read this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. It's long been held that this fourth man in the fire was a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus didn't spare Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire, but he was right there with them in the fire. Friends, he's not going to spare us from every fiery trial. But he will be right there beside you. And we can know that because he faced our ultimate trial already on the cross. I think the cross is the ultimate answer to evil and suffering. It doesn't tell us why we face it. It doesn't tell us why it exists. But you know what it does tell us? It tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. That he loves us enough to suffer with us. Even the atheist writer and philosopher Albert Camus recognized that point when he wrote, Christ the God-man suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important because in its shadows, the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair, including the agony of death. And there's something so beautiful about that point, isn't there? That Jesus loved you enough to come and suffer right beside you. This is the heart of the gospel. The thing so beautiful we're told later in this text that the angels long to look at it. They never grow tired of hearing the story of Jesus' love. And neither should we. Let's pray. Father, we, we, <laughs> we recognize uh, that this world is both beautiful and broken. And as a result, God, we face things that can seem impossible. We face things that we don't understand, that may never come to understand. 
But Father, we thank you for the reality that you have never and you will never leave us or forsake us. We thank you that you are right there with us in whatever it is we're facing. And we thank you, God, for using the hard things in our life to bring us to you and to make us more and more like you. And Father, because of that, we do have reason to rejoice. So we ask that you would enable us to do just that. Help our lives to be ones that are marked by joy and hope. Because those are some of the greatest gifts that you offer us. And we thank you, God, that those things are a reality because of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.